All right, ladies, welcome back. Welcome to week two of our Mark study. Uh, I just wanna remind you that you tackled some hard material in the first week. Mark's prologue is packed. It's deep, it's hard, so good job. Uh, I encourage you to just stick with this. As The longer we're in the book of Mark, the more it's just going to open up to us. We can kind of settle into our routines. Um, so I'm so thankful that you're studying this with us. This last week, we covered a lot of material. We read chapters three, four, and the first part of five. For those of you who are wonderfully organized in type A and hate that I just gave you half of five, I am truly sorry. I used to be a type A and it was wonderful, but now I'm not. So it'll make more sense as we keep reading. But chapters three through five A is what we went through this week. I'm gonna just read the first couple of verses to kind of help us get settled in here. Starting in 3.1, Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, that's a hilarious moment. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. So recall where we ended in week one. Jesus had just called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And now when this chapter opens, where's Jesus? He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So right away we are cued in that the same topic is still on the table. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? We've got these two broad questions that are pushing us through Mark. Who is Jesus? And what is he doing? So let's really consider this opening scene. What's going on here, guys? Well, Jesus draws this man forward, right? He draws the man forward, the man with the shriveled hand, but then he doesn't talk to this man right away. He talks to the Pharisees. Why does he do that? This is kind of a unique story. This healing is unique in the book of Mark because really the focus isn't on the man who's getting healed. The focus is on the Pharisees. And we took note of this in our homework and we realized that it seems like this withered hand is like a teaching illustration. For those of you who teach, you understand how that can greatly strengthen a lesson. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So he pulls this man out, he addresses the Pharisees who are the churchy people. They're the keepers of the law. They are the most impressive, or at least seemingly impressive in the church. They don't answer his question. He feels anger towards them and then he restores this man's hand. It's like Jesus is saying, hey guys, look at this. Do you see this hand? This is what your religion looks like to me. It's deformed, it's broken, it's dry, it's withered. Your religion like this hand is useless. What is Jesus doing? in this moment. Well, in week one, we laid out that what Jesus is doing is bringing the kingdom of God. And that's where we all kind of, you know, look out past each other, nod as if we understand what that means, or maybe we go, mm. <laughs> but really, 
We're faking it, right? To hear that, okay, maybe just for me, to hear that, oh, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. That's when I do one of those fake nods. Like I get it (laughs) or like it actually really moves me because honestly, that phrase kind of stays up in the clouds for me. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, but we can't let it stay there. So what I want us to do is to slow down and make this idea of Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God make it applicable to us, to make it a little bit more concrete or objective. Okay, so let's talk about this. What does that really mean? Well, first of all, what I saw in our text this week is that Jesus is abolishing religion. He's doing away with religion. So what's the problem that Jesus is addressing in chapter three? Was it the hand? Was it the most obvious problem, this deformed hand? No, Jesus is saying this isn't the biggest problem. It's the religion of the Pharisees and of the law keepers. It's the whole system of religion. He says, I'm coming to do away with it. Again, ladies, that's ironic because where is he? He's in the synagogue and it's on Sabbath, two very religious phrases. He's not saying I'm coming to do away with the Romans, your enemies, or I'm coming to do away with taxes or even sickness or ailments. And the Pharisees seem to understand what's going on here. The Pharisees seem to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here, the insult of what he's saying, because they leave to go plot with their own enemies, the people of Herod, on how to destroy Jesus. So why is Jesus so against religion? Or maybe we're curious of what's he going to provide to replace religion? Okay, the religion was a bigger problem than the hand, but religion in itself points to a bigger problem. Because originally, the whole religious system was created to solve the biggest problem of mankind, the problem of sin. Let's march this out. Let's make sure it's really clear to us. So go back to Genesis, of course, and think about uh, the original sin of Adam and Eve when they chose to rebel and rival God rather than reflect him and represent him. In that moment, there was a fracture. There was a break in God's relationship with man. There could no longer be this perfect intimacy and this perfect union and communion. There was a a fracture. But God, in his mercy, built a system that would still allow God's people to be God's people. It would still allow Israel to worship God. He created a system through sacrifices, temples, and priests that would allow the people to worship him. But there was a sense in this infrastructure that God would keep a healthy distance from his people. Being a holy God, he couldn't be close to an imperfect and an unholy people. So he did come to earth, but he stayed atop mountains like Mount Sinai. He did come to his people, but he would stay in the back room of the temple and of the tabernacle. So why would Jesus want to do away with this? Why is Jesus going to replace this? It's because their systems took over. Sin polluted this religious system and legalism took over and law keeping muted out the heart of the system. It became heavy and burdensome. It became hollow and meaningless for the people. 
And that was the reality in Jesus's day. That's what he is addressing when he takes the Pharisees on inside the synagogue. The system that was going to allow the people to draw close to God was actually keeping them away. I mean, even if you think of this man with the withered hand, so often in in the New Testament times, if somebody had a deformity or an ailment or a sickness, they were made to think from the church people that it was their fault, that God was punishing them, that they were cursed and unacceptable to God. Jesus was abolishing religion. What difference does this make for us today? Is is this actually going to affect how we live? I had to spend a good amount of time on this. I just had to sit and meditate on this idea of, is there still religion in my life? If Jesus did away with it 2,000 years ago, have I picked it back up in some ways? Why would I do that? Have I allowed it to creep back in and kind of eclipse my relationship with Jesus? What does that look like in our lives? What does it look like for a woman in 2020 to pick back up the religion that Jesus came to replace? Do we have systems or routines or ways of thinking that actually keep us at like this comfortable distance from God? where he doesn't get too close to us and take over too much of our life? Are we maybe busy working for God rather than enjoying him? Ladies, there are a couple times in my life where the infrastructure of church has been taken away from me. And to be honest with you, I struggle. It's like when church and its routines and And even sometimes the disciplines of Christianity get shaken or taken away from me. I don't know how to interact with God. It's like it wipes the legs out from under me and I feel lost and I feel scared. And then in comes the blues or anxiety, worry or concern. When I see that pattern in my life, I realize that, yeah, there are times that I am still relying on religion to make me think that I'm acceptable before God. There's no gospel in that. Well, maybe you're not like me in that way, but maybe another evidence of living with religion is if you live with a lot of pressure. Do you live your days tightly wound? (laughs) Maybe hot-tempered or quick to emotion or or quick to fear. Maybe those are signs that you're living with a lot of pressure and therefore a lot of shame. I think that when we have religion in our life in a way that it's not helpful, we get to this point, and I saw this in a book years ago, but we're going through life and, and we hit up against something that we didn't see coming or something that scares us or a change, perhaps like quarantine. And there's a fork in the road. And if we are built, if we're relying on religion, then in that moment of failure or fear, we are taken down a road of humiliation. And humiliation does not come from the gospel. And I can imagine that the man with the withered hand lived there. 
But if when we get to that fork in the road, if we have allowed Jesus to abolish religion and instead give us himself and his nearness instead of humiliation, we find an invitation to humility. Doesn't that sound way better? See, we can allow guilt or shame to drive us to this fork in the road. And then we need to turn away from the high pressure, from condemnation or shame, and take the invitation toward humility. And maybe just one more point to this idea of religion still being in our life is maybe we should see, are we putting pressure on the people we love? Are we putting, creating an environment for our spouse or our roommates or our kids or our family where they too feel like they have to perform for God, where they feel like they have to hold it all together on the outside no matter what's going on on the inside? I don't want to do that to the people I love. I don't want to shove them down the road of humiliation, but I want them to follow me as I follow Jesus down the road that leads to humility. So Jesus came to do away with religion and instead give us his nearness. Secondly, what does this mean that Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God? Well, it means that he was going to create a kingdom people. So in week one, we saw him invite his first disciples to follow him. And they dropped their nets and immediately followed him. And then we saw it again in our text this week. Starting in verse 13 of chapter three, it says, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, meaning the sent out people, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. I love this point. Jesus is creating his kingdom people. And bear with me while I again just very quickly take us back, back into the Old Testament to both Genesis and Exodus. That's where this, this story reminds me of. So in Genesis, we saw the first kingdom people, Adam and Eve, and God gave them work to do. He said, you're gonna be my image bearers. I want you to go with my authority to subdue and to have dominion over this garden and then beyond it. See, there in the garden of Eden, God was giving his people work to do. He was going to reign through them. They were to take the goodness of Eden and spread it out to the world. But then just one book later in the story of Exodus, again, we see Jesus or we see God atop Mount Sinai, atop a mountain, just like we saw in the book of Mark. And he calls Moses up and he gives the people the law. He gives them the 10 commandments. He shows them, this is how you will represent me and reflect me. This is how you will take my kingly reign out into the world. He was building his kingdom people there. And you noticed in your homework this week that the people of God, the Israelites, started with 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And here are the 12 disciples. Okay, but let's not leave it up in the clouds or leave it in Old Testament history. What does it mean for us now? What's the application? Why do we care that Jesus did this with the disciples? I think it's because when we clear out religion, we then have room for purpose. We then have room to live out the purpose that God made us for. And we notice that if God's gonna give us a work to do, he's gonna provide for us. He says he's gonna be with his disciples. 
And then he gave them his authority. And they gave them, he gave them his word. Ladies, that's what we need. If we're going to live out our purpose, we need to know and believe that Jesus is with us. And then we need to stand tall, understanding that he has given us his authority as his image bearers, that we can go out and subdue and have dominion in a way that brings him glory. And then we need to cling to his word and preach his word. I often feel like my peers, including myself, especially myself, sometimes feel like the whole talk of purpose and living on mission kind of expired after college ministry. Do you ever feel that way? Like now we're just kind of stuck in our routines, whether it's our jobs or our homes, and just kind of have a lack of excitement or purpose. That's not true. Purpose doesn't expire just because we hit our 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever it is. What encouragement it is to look at the younger ladies, especially those who are in the study with us, and be reminded that we have room to live out our purpose when religion has been abolished by Jesus. So, so far, do we see the difference here, guys? Religion, it makes us march around dutifully, burdened, almost busying ourselves with religious things and exhausting ourselves, performing for God, performing for each other, hoping that you think I look as impressive as I want to be. But the good news already in this chapter, the good news, the gospel, is that we are freed up not to march, but to run, to run after Jesus, to follow him. Last week we saw Jesus was rest and joy, and now we see that in Jesus there is purpose. What else does it mean that he's bringing his kingdom? We saw, in, starting in verse 22, that Jesus came to defeat Satan and evil. Starting uh, in verse 22, it says, The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the rulers of the demons. So Jesus summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And he continues on. So what's going on here, guys, is that the leaders, whether it's the Pharisees or the scribes, they see Jesus's authority. And we're going to see it throughout the whole book. And it confused them. They don't understand where could this authority possibly come from. And so in their heart and hearts, they say, well, this authority must come from Satan. But this doesn't make sense. And Jesus is going to clear it up right away. He makes it clear. No, I came to defeat Satan, not to work for him. And in our homework, we saw that Jesus showed this right away when he allowed himself to be driven out into the wilderness and for 40 days to fight against Satan. You know, he kind of just kicked Satan's butt in that scene, hinting at what he would do on a much bigger scale soon. Jesus says, I'm here to defeat Satan. I will bind him and I will plunder his house. What that means is that he is going to tie him up, so to speak, Jesus was going to take back his place, meaning earth, and his people with his power. There's our definition of kingdom of God from last week. Jesus was going to take back his place that he ruled and his people with his power. And then I love it. 
Jesus just flows naturally into the topic of forgiveness. He talks about how there's this connection between forgiveness and Satan being bound. Forgiveness is made available because Jesus binds Satan. See, when we get rid of religion and we are living as disciples of Christ, we live with forgiveness from him. Religion brings in guilt, shame, condemnation. The good news is that we have forgiveness from him. We need to tune our ear to hear that forgiveness, to ask for that and mute out the condemnation of the enemy. And God's forgiveness is liberal. This topic here about the unforgivable sin, it often trips us up and we freak out about that, so afraid that we've committed that sin. Listen, if you're freaking out about it, then you haven't committed that sin. Jesus brings up one sin that is an eternal sin and the rest are forgivable. We should turn our focus there at how vast his forgiveness and his mercy are for us. But did you understand how this forgiveness was bought for us? We looked at it in our homework. How will Jesus bind Satan and therefore bring forgiveness to us? By being bound himself. What was Jesus going to do with all of this power that he's showing? He's going to lay it down that we might find forgiveness. Each week we are going to talk about the death of Christ. We're going to talk about the cross, not to run, to, to be a spoiler alert, but Mark is focused on the cross. He is showing us that Jesus' face is set on Jerusalem and on the cross the whole way through. And so we have to see it in each week of our study. But let's keep moving. Okay, religion is done away with, and now there is room for faith. We ask the question, what is Jesus going to replace religion with? He's going to replace it with faith. So as we moved into chapter 4, we flew through these parables and we weren't able to get all of the details of this, but we were able to see that there is a need for faith emerging for the kingdom people. Because according to these parables, the kingdom of God is not exactly what they would expect. You've probably heard this language before, but the kingdom of God was going to be upside down. It was going to be cloaked in a paradox. It was going to be hidden. It was going to run on a much different timeline than maybe the people would expect. Maybe as you looked at the story of the mustard seed, you would understand that the kingdom has small beginnings. It's going to require faith. After we got through the parables, we were able to land on a story that I hope was uh, familiar to you. The story of the winds and the waves obeying Jesus. Starting in 435, it says, On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. There's a map in the back of your studies, by the way, ladies. And if you want to try and map out everywhere Jesus goes, I think that that would be really effective. See if you can catch how many times he's crossing the seas. So here he is. He's like, oh, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. Seems to make sense. And the other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And we know what a stern is, right? Because we watched Titanic in 2001 or something. I don't know, but he's in the stern. That must be where the cushion is, because he's sleeping on the cushion. And so they woke him up, and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. There is so much in this short little story. We see the authority of Jesus, obviously, that even the wind and the waves obey him. But we spent an entire day comparing this story with the story of Jonah. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as me, especially those of you who did the study of Jonah with us a couple of years ago. But what was the point of that? I mean, if you were reading in the ESV or the NIV, you would even see that Mark used the same words. He really did want us to think of the story of Jonah when we read this. But what are we supposed to learn from that? Well, there's, there's a lot there. But part of what I want us to see today is that when it says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm, you need to actually picture what happened there. The wind stopped on a dime and the great calm, it means like the waters looked like glass. Do you know what I mean by that? I got excited when I read the story, when I saw one commentator describe it like that glassy water because my absolute favorite thing in the whole world is tubing. I love to get drugged behind a boat and tube in the summer. We got to do it. And I like was fighting my kids for turns. I was like, no, 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 mommy has to show you how to do it. I'm going first. And I rode that tube so much that I got tendonitis in my elbow, but I just kept, you know, you go like this if you want to go faster. And I just kept going like this. And I tried to go up on my knees, even though I just tore my ACL a year ago, but it was so fun, especially when you get out of the wake and the waters look like glass and you feel like you're flying. And then you do fly because you remember you're 35 and you let go and you crash into the, the waters. That's what this reminded me of. So ladies, when you read that the winds cease and there was a great calm, you need to think big waves, waves that were so big that these disciples, these fishermen, thought that they were gonna die. The water is breaking into the boat. The boat was being swamped. Think of the size of those waves and then boom, as still as class. That is the calm that Jesus brought to his disciples. What else are we supposed to observe here? I want you to notice when Jesus talks to the disciples, when he seems to contract the story in on them because he's gonna do it throughout the whole book and he talks to them about their faith. You're gonna notice over and over again, Jesus's attention isn't really on his enemies all that often and it's not on the crowds. Mark focuses on the stories of the disciples' faith. So we are invited to put ourselves in their shoes. And we lose it in some of our translations. 
but I really want you to understand Jesus's tone when he talks to them. He brings the calm and then he turns to them and he's not angry and he's not coming down on them like he did the Pharisees. He says, why are you afraid? And, and it almost translates more like this. I know you have faith. Maybe just a mustard seed. I know you have faith and I know that it's growing or it's opening or it's budding. I know that it is in process. Ladies, when our lives are built on religion, when our relationship with Jesus is, is held up by religion and performance and pressure and expectations, then what happens when a storm comes? When you think you know how God should be leading your life, when you think you know how Jesus should rule as king, or you think that your relationship with God is built on your good behavior, or when you think that you're impressing God with your credentials, your church resume, then when a storm comes, you are at risk for crumbling. In fact, you are probably at risk for responding like Jonah. Jonah had a lot of religion. He was a prophet. He was a golden boy of the golden people, and his resume was nice. But then God comes to him and throws him for a loop. He says, I want you to go to your enemies. I want you to go to my enemies, the people of Assyria. And I want you to warn them. I want you to carry my mercy deep into Nineveh. And that doesn't make sense to Jonah. That sounds scary. That rubs his pride the wrong way. Jonah's religion starts crumbling because God is not acting as tamed as Jonah hoped he would. And so what does he do? He throws a big old adult temper tantrum. His anger gets the best of him. His self-pity swallows him whole and he runs hard away from God. When our lives are built on religion and hoping that we can turn the gaze of God towards our good behavior so that we can feel good about ourselves or so that we can secure an eternity in heaven. We are a house of cards. And when a storm comes or a pandemic comes or our finances change or singleness remains or disease comes, we might just harden against him. We might just plop down in a temper tantrum and get stuck. And that's our invitation from these, these chapters is to follow Jesus away from religion and pressure, humiliation, to follow him and to let that good news be the melody that helps us keep up with him. We don't work with God in a way where we save up our, our chips, so to speak, our good behavior, 
until it's time to push them across the table and say, God, you better do what I expect you to do. And then our story ended where Jesus crosses the waters again and he goes into an area that was not religious, you could say. It was actually a region that was Gentile. It was non-Jewish. And he encounters this man who was possessed by a demon. And you took the time in your homework to see Mark, who hasn't used many details because the story's moving so fast. Mark gives all these details about how incredibly enslaved this man was. The irony is that he would break any chains that were put on him. And Jesus frees him from this demon possession. And this place of death, this place of tombs, became a place of life because of Jesus. Do you see how Jesus left the religious people to go to a man that he wanted to bring life to? So ladies, as we close down this week, we should rejoice that Jesus is bringing his kingdom. And we can honestly nod and go, mm, now because we see how very good it is that he came to abolish religion. We see that we have purpose and we see that he came to defeat Satan. Keep looking for everything that Jesus does on a small scale in the gospels, he's gonna do on a much bigger scale, a cosmic scale. See, Jesus restored that man's hand. He didn't just fix it, he restored it. And we can nod and say, Jesus came to restore Eden. See, when Jesus came and ushered in the kingdom, what he was doing was he was bringing in the nearness of God. And I've heard it said that our greatest need and our greatest desire is the nearness of God. And Jesus provided just that. So there's no reason for us to be bored or lifeless. There's no reason for guilt or condemnation because of the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus has brought us. Jesus has come to restore Eden. I mean, did you notice how many times, even just in this text, where we pulled back to Eden? But the reality of Eden is that it actually points us forward to something even better. Nancy Guthrie, one of my favorite Bible teachers and authors, she talks about Eden as like a garden that was not yet in full bloom, that it was bursting with potential. See, Eden was not the end game. Adam and Eve were supposed to spread Eden everywhere, but then they sinned and it got messed up. So Jesus comes and he's not just restoring Eden. He is bringing a recreation. So someday when we are in heaven or when Jesus brings the new heavens and the new earth, we will live in perfect nearness to him. And if you look through the book of Revelation, you will see this beautiful little detail that reminds us of the story of the storm. That in our perfect union with Christ, with God, in heaven, the sea will be no more. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more death. Satan will be completely defeated and we will live forever as the image bearers and the worshipers of the one true God, that is our really, really good news for week two. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have fixed the biggest problem. Maybe the problem that we can't see, 
you have fixed the problem of sin. You have fixed the problem of a hard heart and have given us new hearts. So Father, I pray that this would not get lost in generalizations or get lost in the clouds, but that we would see exactly how we can live out a response to your kingdom that has come. Father, I pray that we would live as free, humble women who have the nearness of God. Thank you for the gospel. Amen.